Welcome to the iHealth Podcast, a podcast for you to relate to like-minded individuals discussing hot topics all related to rehab, fitness, and business. Brought to you by Iron Health from Westchester, New York. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, join us today with our sports psychologist, Jen Schumacher. We're going to dive into her route of becoming part of West Point and the work that she does with them through sports psychology, as well as why it's important to set goals. It's a really interesting conversation that she and Joe have today. Hopefully you enjoy. All right, Jen. So thank you for taking time out of your day to come on the iHealth podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. It's great to be on the podcast and listen. I I listened to the show. I've heard a couple of your guests. It's uh, it's an awesome thing you're doing for the community. So I'm honored to be on. Awesome. Thank you. So I think a good way for us to start is to kind of dive into your specific realm of performance psychology trainer and and really what that is and what that looks like. And um, I always like to find out what got you into that. Like, what was the route that propelled you that way? Mm, Okay. So um, yeah, I mean, like most people in in college and and even before that, I, I really didn't know necessarily what I wanted to do. Um, so I kind of like meandered into the world of sport and performance psychology. I knew I wanted to study sport. And as soon as I got to college and discovered that there was this thing called kinesiology and I could just keep learning about sport and athletics, I was so pumped. Um, I, I grew up a competitive swimmer, um, and, and always watched sports, you know, with, with my parents at home and, and, you know, certainly didn't play a lot of different sports, but dabbled a little bit as a kid. So I was very much drawn to really all subdisciplines within kinesiology, um, I bounced around a little bit early on. I uh, interned with the strength and conditioning program at my junior community college. I was actually in an athletic training program for a hot minute, um, thought I might do biomechanics and exercise physiology, uh, then was really more into the coaching side of it. I was coaching on the side through college. Uh, and then finally, my senior year of college, I took this class uh, that someone told me, you know, you got to take this class with Ken Revisa. He was a professor at Cal State Fullerton where I was in the program. Uh, It'll change the way you coach. And so I took the class and absolutely fell in love with everything that he was talking about, which was essentially sport and performance psychology. Um, After the class, I asked him if he'd take me on as a grad student uh, and signed up for grad school and and started that program with him uh, at Cal State Fullerton the very next year. So I trained under Ken. Uh, Ken was a a world-renowned sports psychology consultant. He worked with a bunch of different Olympic programs. I think he went to eight different Olympics, including summer and winter. He worked for the Angels for 27 years. And then uh, later in his career, he ended up being part of the Cubs uh, World Series win. So uh, he worked closely with Joe Madden uh, throughout his time when he was with the Angels and then the Tampa Bay Rays. And then, of course, at, uh, at Chicago at the end. Um, so I, I absolutely, you know, soaked everything up and learned a ton from, from Ken and other mentors at Fullerton. When I graduated, I, I really was torn if I wanted to go back into coaching or, or get into sports psychology, but um, I was so passionate about what I had been learning and also applying to myself as an athlete throughout graduate school. I was uh, still competing in open water racing and I just saw the, the magic uh, and capabilities that the way we think, the power of our minds has on our performance and knew that that was something I wanted to do. So I, I started a private practice and started teaching at Cal State Fullerton and working with a bunch of teams in their athletic department. And I was there for six years before having the opportunity to come out here 
out east, uh, where I now work as a performance psychology trainer at uh, the United States Military Academy. So that's a kind of a long story, but that's how I got here. That's pretty awesome. So you were able to kind of learn on the run and then really carry that over. Would you say like you were you were your first client in essence, you know, when, when it comes to swimming? Yeah. So that was the interesting thing about the way I approached it in graduate school. Um, I mean, sports psychology inherently is very much an apprentice-like career path, uh, much like coaching, right? You you find someone that you can look to as a mentor, you observe them, you shadow them, you ask them questions, you learn from them about their approach and do that with as many mentors as you can and follow anyone around that will let you follow them around. Uh, and then you start practicing when you're in grad school at first, just with like kind of local youth teams and high schools and anyone that will let you get your hands dirty um, before you get cut loose into the real world where it matters, right? Uh, of course, it always matters, but that's when you really start making your name and building your your reputation and, and your practice. But I also, uh, at the same time, was like, I'm, I'm just, I guess, maybe a cynic by nature uh, and a skeptic. And when even when I first took my first sports psychology class. Um, and I don't know if it was just being from a very individual uh, sport and, and being a distant swimmer, which, you know, is, is a lot about work ethic and grit. Um, I, I wasn't quite sure. I wasn't totally sold on the mental game, which is really interesting because that's, you know, now mm. what I do. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I had this kind of mindset of like, I don't, I don't really understand what this sports psych thing is. Like, why don't you just put your head down and swim faster? Um, <laughs> so I was constantly doing this battle with myself and I decided, you know, if I was really ever going to give this a shot, I needed to practice in my own laboratory. And so to me, my own personal laboratory was open water training. Uh, by the time I was in the program in grad school, I'd run out of, uh, collegiate swimming eligibility and was really still looking for a way to compete and train. And so that's when I got into, um, marathon swimming and, uh, got to do some really phenomenal races and, and events and explore my own mental training as an athlete uh, first before I, I started teaching it to uh, to other athletes and performers. So that's really where a lot of kind of my own personal learning helped uh, or, or developed early on, especially given that, you know, most of Ken's practice and what I was learning and observing from him had to do with these more closed sports, baseball, softball, golf. Um, you know, soccer, tennis, like these were all either team sports or closed sports where there wasn't like a consistent pace. I mean, basketball is the closest thing uh, where it's like constantly, or I guess soccer, where it's like constantly moving very few breaks. But marathon swimming was just so, so different from what I was seeing. And it turns out so many of those skills translate. Um, but I really needed to apply these skills in my own personal laboratory to, to really fully understand it. Yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. Like that's definitely, uh, you know, learn by doing, and then you can carry it over. Mm -hmm. um, if we dive into the specifics of, I guess, like techniques or really, like, how do you, how do you look at this? What is your structure when it comes to looking at someone's psychology and kind of picking out what needs to get better? Like, the basic framework you use for this? Yeah, that's a good question, Joe. I mean, it's it's so different for every every performer I work with and every team that I work with. A lot of it has to do with initially early on getting to know them as a human first and a performer second. So I tend to take a pretty holistic approach and I want to get to know like what are their typical challenges? What's their performance background? Why do they do what they do? 
I think so much of that early work has to do with developing awareness. And, and that's, I think, at least for me, what was totally lacking in the beginning when I was a quote unquote skeptic, I really just lacked awareness. And so I usually start there. Like, what's it like for you when you're going well? And what's it like for you when you're not going well? Um, it doesn't necessarily mean we're constantly going to be trying to get you in the zone because that's not realistic either. But we can maybe learn from those experiences of peak performance and see what controllable elements of that we can replicate more consistently through training. So that sort of gives you the blueprint of what that individual performer needs. And then we start training those skills, whether that be confidence, effective thinking strategies like self-talk, managing energy levels, dealing with pre-performance nerves or anxiety, imagery skills, motivation and goal setting. I mean, there's so many different areas of it. It's just about figuring out what's the blueprint telling me this person needs and then how can we train that together? Hmm. So that's a lot. So like every, every single person is different. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What, what would you say are like the... the major factors besides awareness that you see come up with um, the majority of your clients? Well, I guess that depends. I mean, if I'm thinking about um, like the bulk of my work right now is at West Point. And so if I think about the typical cadet that comes in, um, I mean, they come in for, for such a diverse range of reasons, but I know one trend that our team sees a lot in our center is cadets coming in struggling with issues of confidence or identity. Um, and, you know, maybe some of that has to do with basic training. I think that that first summer, uh, you know, can be really challenging and, and can really force you into this state of not really knowing who you are, why you're here, what you're really good at. Um, not to mention everyone that comes here is the best of the best. And so they go from mm. being this big fish in a small pond to potentially being or perceiving it to be a small fish in a big pond. I tell them they're really just the same size fish in a much larger pond. Uh, <laughs> but that's the whole thing, right? It's, it's trying to help them reframe some of those experiences they've had to learn from the adversity and setbacks they've experienced, but to also recognize where they're improving, where the progress lies, where the opportunity is, and then helping them see some of those qualities that make them a great cadet and a great future officer. And that's why they're here. So we do a lot of work with confidence. And, uh, you know, personally, I do a lot of work with knowing why you're here. Why do you do what you do? Uh, I think that, um, you know, if you know your why, you can get through just about any how. Hmm. That's, that's, that's awesome. I definitely want to dive back into the confidence thing. We can circle back around. But my first uh, question would be with these, like, kids, pretty much they're kids, right? They are a lot of the issues because they're, they're still super young, too. And, and there's a, uh, an image, not an immaturity level, but like, a I guess, a, I guess it is a maturity level, you know, but not like being immature, just like their age and doesn't bring them to that level. Uh, some of it. Yeah. I mean, we, we, so the typical age range of cadets coming in is anywhere from 17 to 23. Although the bulk of those are in, on the younger age. They are kind of a typical traditional college-aged group. Uh, the, the oldest mm -hmm. you can be as an incoming plea, which is our endearing term for freshmen, is 23 years old. So we do have some folks that have been to a community college, uh, a military prep school, maybe even another university, and they've been part of an ROTC program. We've got some folks that come from prior service. So we do have a vast array of backgrounds coming in, but the majority of cadets coming in are fresh out of high school, no prior service, 17, 18 years of age. Uh, and they're making that transition not only from high school to college, but also from 
in many cases, a or a civilian to a, a military life. Um, many of them don't have service in their backgrounds or their family's history. So some of it is just uncertainty and unknown and dealing with this, this massive transition and upheaval of uh, identity and sense of self. Uh, and so, yes, some of that could be chalked up to maturity. They are college students, just like any other. And, you know, there's competing interests and, uh, you know, a wide range of habits and study skills and, uh, you know, ability yeah. to kind of manage the workload. But for the most part, and in some ways, they're definitely one of the most motivated, mature and selfless groups of college students I've ever inter uh, interacted with. Uh, many of them yeah. have incredibly big dreams and aspirations. Uh, they've experienced a lot of success and they're here for a reason. It's just that that first year can be really challenging. It's really for many of them the first time they've gotten kicked down a little bit and told that they're not good enough. And that can be a really jarring mm -hmm. experience for a young person that's never experienced that before. Mm, that's very interesting. That that's uh, That's got to be true. Like you said, if they're coming from an area where they were that big fish to now being talked down to almost or kind of breaking them down right in essence that's the goal you want to kind of break them down to rebuild them up i'm assuming yeah so i mean that's the purpose of most you know military basic trainings that that um anyone entering the services will go through for us we uh put the new cadets through a six-week basic training affectionately referred to as beast so that's kind of their first formative experience and introduction to the army they're actually not even cadets until they pass that phase they're called new cadets, oh, wow. um, which in some ways becomes almost uh, a worse word than plebe. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, that that experience is definitely challenging. It's something that many of them know about, are prepared for. It's part of the experience. It's something that they do in order to better relate to their soldiers who all have to go through basic training. Uh, you know, each cadet will eventually take command and, and lead a, a platoon of, of soldiers as second lieutenants in the army. So it's an experience that they need to have under their belt so that they can empathize and lead. Um, but at the same time, it's really challenging. If you've never experienced anything like that before, it's, uh, you know, almost like an altered state of functioning. And then, you know, straight mm -hmm. after that, you go right into freshman year of college, plebe year, which brings with it a whole nother host of challenges. So it's not necessarily that they're getting broken down or kicked down, but they do experience some adversity that first year. Personally, I've never been through it myself. I did not go to West Point, but I've learned from them and, and through the experiences of others where they've shared it with me that that can be such a trying year. Um, and, and for some of them, it it stays difficult for a while. And so we're there to help support. Um, and, and we don't really think that you build back up passively, right? There's some active work that needs to be done there. Mm-hmm. Totally. How, how does the structure work? Is every cadet kind of mandated to come speak with you? Or are you almost on like a as-need basis? No, actually, we're, like? we're fully self-referred. Uh, so cadets that want uh, our help, our services, seek us out. Um, and so I should, I should backpedal a little bit. Um, where we work is called the Center for Enhanced Performance, and it houses both academic support services as well as performance psychology. So the performance psychology part of CEP, as it's known, the Center for Enhanced Performance, involves myself and then three of my colleagues who are all trained in performance psychology. So um, essentially, the four of us work with uh, individual cadets that come in and also with a variety of Division I teams. So every cadet's an athlete, but about a third of them are also NCAA Division I athletes. And there are certainly some really competitive club 
teams as well that seek us out. So we'll work with different teams and that's just another way to expand our impact and our reach. Uh, you know, an hour of my time could be spent with one individual, but it could also be spent talking to, you know, a 50 person baseball team. Uh, so there's kind of different approaches. Of course, it's not as individualized, but it's just a way to help get those services out to a greater number of cadets because there are only four of us for, you know, a, a core of roughly 4,400 cadets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this whole concept is extremely interesting because, you know, I look back on my life and I'm, and I'm, wonder if uh, if I had someone like you and it, it would change things right because it's a valuable service and it, it would you think that or do you say that this can be transmitted to like the everyday person someone who's not in the military oh absolutely I mean and I agree with you Joe I wish I had discovered this much earlier in life um, I was fortunate to have a, a coach on my club swim team that had us do imagery uh, the last practice before big swim meets. Uh, and I always carried that skill forward. But the more I learned about this, the more I realized, like, man, I could have been doing things a little bit differently. But I'm so glad I found it when I did because it was an immensely important, not just in my career, obviously, but also in my in my own training. Um, but, you know, I, I work with, you know, non-athletes as well. So in private practice, I work with a lot of executives, uh, a bunch of uh, Fortune 100 executives, CEOs, partners, um, and essentially, we're taking the same skills that elite athletes use to enhance performance and applying it to really everyday performance, right? Because as business people, as executives, we're, we're all performing, right? You might have a board meeting or, or a, a sell to a client or a really challenging interpersonal conflict that needs to be resolved with someone on your team. Those are all performances where skills like confidence, imagery, uh, communication, you know, different strategies to manage energy levels and anxiety are all important, just like they are to the elite athlete. Uh, and that's really the premise of the program at West Point, right? We're taking different ideas and concepts from the field of sport and exercise psychology and applying it to all three pillars at West Point, where we're working with cadets on not just athletic performance, but also military and academic performance. So we know these concepts apply outside of, at West Point, we would call it the fields of friendly strife or the athletic arena. <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, this, this is one field for me, too, that is, is extremely interesting. You know, as a PT, I, I deal with a lot of, of psychological things, you know, uh, getting people through barriers of pain. You know, it's, at a, it's just on a different level. It's, it's just... Uh, everyone you speak to, you are, like you said, performing. I like, I like the way you, you said that. It's really well said. Yeah, well, thank you. And, you know, I, I, I completely get it. Like, you know, the, the athletic trainers we work with and the PTs we come into contact with, they're all doing probably just as much mental training with athletes as we are, just because you're so hands-on and you're with the athletes you're working with on a regular basis. Um, you know, I always joke about it with Ryan, who I see at Iron Health. Um, he's been awesome, but he always gives me a hard time when I'm being a baby about some exercise or challenge that he wants me to do. And he reminds me that I, you know, I'm a performance psychology trainer at West Point. So I need to, <laughs> I need to use my own skills and practice what I preach. Um, but no, I, I totally get it, right? You see this every day in your job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I think it'd be good for us to kind of dive in specifically 
to the athletes you deal with. I mean, everyone at West Point is considered an athlete in my book, even if they're not doing sports. But what are some major things that you see that makes an extremely competitive, well-versed athlete versus someone who's not? Like, what is their mindset shift? What, what do they focus on? What do they believe in? Oh, man, there's that's a great question. There's so many different ways I feel like I could go with that. Uh, but I will point out that every cadet is an athlete because my friends at West Point would be disappointed if I didn't. So even if they're not a Division One athlete, they still have to compete on some level, either on a club team or in intramural sports. So everyone's getting some development in the athletic pillar in addition to their military and academic training as well. Um, what we do see with the, the more elite uh athletic performers. And that's not just in division one sports. Certainly many of them are, but we also have an extremely competitive Sandhurst team. Uh, some of the military performances that the cadets engage in, uh, in that pillar, like some of the difficult military schools like Sears school and combat dive school are extremely physically demanding. And there are elite individuals in, in different areas as well. In fact, one of the club teams I work with is our triathlon team. Uh, and last year, which I guess is the, <laughs> still the current reigning national collegiate champion is, is on our team since there was no nice. nationals uh, for triathlon this year, unfortunately, or at least not yet. Um, <laughs> so she'll get a second year out of that title and before she has to defend it. But anyways, so we see elite athletes in you know many different areas that we come into contact with. Um, and it's really interesting. Sometimes they are elite because of physical gifts, talents that have gotten them to that level where they really still haven't met that, that you know, ceiling or that level of competitor that's caused them to really look inside and develop their mental game. Um, and for some of them, it's quite the opposite where they've had to fight and claw their way to the top. And they've done that through deliberate effort in every aspect of their lives, not just physical training, getting after it in the weight room, taking care of their bodies through prehab, focusing on nutrition and wellness through proper sleep, hydration, and nutritional needs, and of course, work in the mental game. Um, so, you know, most of the athletes that we see on a regular basis are really cutting, the, you know, really sharpening the sword in, in all those areas. And there's challenges that prevent you from attaining excellence in some of those ways. At West Point, for example, cadets on average sleep about six hours a night during their four years here. Mm -hmm. um, but still, even the ones that aren't sleeping enough, right, even if they're not sleeping the proper eight to nine hours that we know athletes at that age should get, uh, they're making the most out of those six hours and maybe pushing it to six and a half or even seven. They're using their weekends wisely. They're practicing proper sleep hygiene. They're making sure that they're really, really considerate of their goals, their athletic and long-term goals, rather than uh, their social media desires uh, when it's time to hit the pillow. Uh, <laughs> so we see like a high degree of grit and resilience and focus amongst those people that are consistently achieving high results. And of course, that translates into the mental game as well, right? We see them deliberately working and applying strategies. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that I'll have a meeting with a cadet uh, about you know whatever part of the mental game we're working on and they've got their notepad out and they're taking notes it's just a wonderful thing it's uh you know the the level of excellence that we see there really really is um is different and there's something else mm -hmm. totally i mean that's kind of like a, a breeding yeah. ground for that because they have to be on yeah, their game right? sure. how, how do we tr transfer that to kind of the everyday person you know where our lives are 
just you know especially like right now it's like you know it's sunny out i don't want to i don't want to go do this like how do we carry that over how do we advance and use those principles for our everyday life so i think you know if we're, if we're talking about that deliberate focus um and drive that so many of the cadets exhibit um you know, and certainly some of them struggle with this too, right? Even even cadets will struggle. I mean, I'm sure, you know, some of them that are taking summer classes right now would probably rather be outside and maybe some of them are. Um, <laughs> they're college kids like everyone else. But one thing that we see them working deliberately on and, and we help them with is setting goals um, and, and focusing on not just the daily process. That's really super important. And we have to get back to that. But also, what do you want to get out of your experience here? What is the end objective that you're pursuing? Um, so I think we start there and then backwards plan from that. So if let's say, like, for example, last year I worked with a woman who uh, she, she had just finished her second year on the swim and dive program. She'd you know realized that she was getting the most out of her physical training. She was really pouring everything into that. And she was crushing it. She was an absolute workhorse in the pool. But where she was holding herself back was behind the blocks, right? Her meat mentality, her mindset at races, and she would get in her own way. And so she decided that was an area where she really wanted to address uh, in service of her long-term goal, which was ultimately becoming a Patriot League champion. Uh, and so she worked deliberately week in, week out. She was there every single time working the mental game, always asking questions, always with her notepad, always applying these things. We'd talk about different skills and strategies. She'd apply them at practice and in the weight room that very next day. She did the same thing that tenacious veracity showed in the weight room, in the pool, of course, and then the way she treated her body and, and her wellness program, just everything was addressed. Um, and we had this beautiful goal sheet that we made that had, you know, what she wanted to accomplish, the time she wanted to go at the end of the season, um, you know, winning Patriots, which, of course, is an outcome goal that's not entirely within our control. So I think the most important part of that is the backwards planning, right? How do we get down to the daily objectives? So if that's your end of season goal, work backwards from there. Where do you need to be at sort of like a mid range, uh, you know, middle of the season dual meet? Where do you need to be at the end of the semester? Where do you need to be at the end of this month, at the end of this week? What do you need to be doing today? And of course, what do you need to be doing today in each of those pillars? What do you need to be taking care of physically in terms of wellness, nutrition, and the mental game? And can we create some habits around executing those actions every single day? And of course, also some affirmations to remind you of who you are and why you are meant to be here and what you're capable of. And she just absolutely went after that goal and was able to, uh, to basically achieve the, the goal. She ended up being a Patriot league champion this year. And um, I'm excited to work with her into her senior year as she defends that title. Of course, it doesn't always work out that way, right? Well, the sports are objective. And um, as a good colleague and friend of mine says, the enemy gets a vote. Uh, or the outcome has a say, the opponent has a say. Um, yeah. But in her case, it just worked out, and that was the icing on the cake. But uh, really, she she did the work every single day, day in, day out, and stayed consistent. That's that's amazing. And that, there's so much in there to unpack because like, she sounds like she's a hell of an athlete, and her drive is you know unparalleled with anyone right now. Um, for for goal setting you know with her she's a good example right like you guys had a that that specific goal like we want to win this for for someone who's who doesn't have that specific action 
how far out would you suggest like they make a goal? Is it, you know, monthly, you know, quarterly, yearly? What are some guidelines you use for that? For It really for depends someone? on what they're looking to achieve. I mean, goal setting only works when it's in an area that you're, you're, is meaningful to you, right? So if, let's say you're working with me and, and you wanted me to set a goal towards, say, running a certain amount, um, and that's not something that I'm passionate about, care about, or need to do for my training, <laughs> right? No matter how great of a goal setting <laughs> program we put together, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be meaningful. It wouldn't be relevant. Um, so usually the person I'm working with drives that conversation, right? What are you looking to accomplish? And goal setting is about you know, one part of that puzzle, but that's something that we'll address pretty early on, right? Developing awareness first, understanding why you do what you do, and then thinking through what do you, what is it that you want to do with these talents, gifts, or this situation you have? So for an athlete, that's probably going to look like, what do you want the next season to look like? Or how do you want the next season to go? For an executive, it might be, how do you want the next quarter's numbers to come out? What do you want your team uh, where, you know, what kind of a situation do you want your team to be in at the end of the year or at the end of the fiscal year? Um, for maybe a high school student, it might be, what do you want the end of the semester to look like? What do you want your GPA to be? Or what learning objectives do you want to have accomplished? Um, and those are all the end state, right? But the, the bulk of the work is in that backwards planning process of, okay, well, what does that look like? mid-range, short-term, and then most importantly, on a daily basis? And then how can we set up daily habits or daily goals to support that goal? Mm. Yeah, that's that's really, really fantastic. Do you think that when you create goals, um, let's say someone who's not an ex ex executive or an athlete, but someone who just wants to be a better person, do, do you look at goals that are... Uh, can you set multiple goals? You know, is it very much driven on, hey, I want to uh, go away this this year? You know, would you say reverse engineer that? Do you carry it over to every aspect of life, or do you say your goals are more or, like focused on a specific uh, accomplishment? I'm sorry, Joe, I I didn't quite understand the question. Sure. So when you when you have people set goals who aren't uh, athletes or executives. Do you say, okay, we need goals that are only geared to accomplishing something, or we also want to create goals that are going to make you feel oh, a certain Oh, absolutely. Way? I think that's a really important part of the process too. So the objective outcome goals can sometimes be the more obvious, easy to set goals, but sometimes a goal is, I just, I really want to have a great relationship with my spouse, uh, or I want to work on being the best parent I can be. Uh, those are a little bit tougher because they don't necessarily have an end date and they don't have a look or a feel to them, right? So how do you know when you've accomplished that? Um, but I think they're still really important because it's that daily progress that matters. And so in the same vein as, as with the outcome goals where they're measurable, I think coming to that daily unit of what do I need to do today in order to be the best parent possible? Or what do I need to do today in order to manage my stress better? What do I do, need to do today in order to feel better about myself or to be a more grateful, compassionate person? Uh, and if we can come up with specific action steps and then tie those into some sort of routine or habit, uh, then, then we're making progress every day. So it need not be something specific that's tied to the end of season or the end of a year. It can be something that's a little bit more long term and subjectively ending. And maybe it never ends, right? I don't think our 
our quest to become the best parent, spouse, or compassionate person ever really ends. It's this continual process of growth. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's all about coming down to that daily unit and making that behavior very specific so that we can answer it with a yes or no question. Did I do this or not? Hmm. Would you say that, um, do you recommend journaling then? Like how does someone really? Yeah. I mean, journaling is a great way to reflect and to develop awareness. Um, and certainly we can keep track of our daily actions in a journal. That can be one purpose of journaling. There's so many different ways we can use journaling to enhance performance. Um, I like it as a tool for reflection, especially if we're really going after a particular craft of ours, right? We're going to develop a love-hate relationship with anything we pour ourselves into fully. Uh, so understanding mm -hmm. that it's going to be a balance, like if we're really pursuing excellence, we're going to have tough days. And those are arguably the days that we learn the most from. And too often, we're really quick to just like, ah, got to get, get rid of that and let go of that practice or that day at work that really sucked and hopefully it'll be better tomorrow. Uh, but I really challenge the cadets and other other performers I work with, like, no, 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 those are the days where there's really true opportunities for growth in there. Let's reflect and deliberately assess how that went and what are the lessons learned that we can capture. Um, there's a lot of great ways to do that. Journaling is one of them. That's awesome. For If we circle back around to confidence, I know we touched on it before. Um, and I think it's an important thing, right? Because so many people have that feeling uh, of not feeling good enough. So what are some ways you tackle helping people become more confident in their ability? Confidence can be a really, really challenging skill set to build. But at the end of the day, it is a skill set. It's something that we can develop and deliberately work on. Um, my, my mentor used to say confidence is a choice. And at first, I looked at him like he was crazy mm. and from another planet, right? Uh, you know, who are you to tell me, uh, you know, a, a, someone with a self-perception of being quiet and shy and underconfident that I can just choose to be confident. Uh, but really, I was falsely equating shyness and introversion with confidence. And you can be quietly confident. You can be uh, an introverted, confident person, right? Confidence simply means you have a sense of certainty in your abilities and you believe in yourself. Um, it's also not to be confused with arrogance or false confidence, Arrogance being the idea that you believe that you're better than others uh, and that you somehow have things that others don't have or, or you have some leg up on the competition um, that, that you have to kind of almost show yourself off to others, right? And, and often arrogant people behave in outlandishly confident ways, but that's not for them, right? That's a show for other people. They're so committed to convincing others of their confidence. Mm. Um, and then false confidence, I guess, would be behaving in a confident way or having confidence that's unearned, right? So you're confident in something you haven't yet developed. So, um, you know, maybe you're confident in a skill set that you haven't really given any time or attention to. So with true confidence, right, I like to say it's, it's for you by you, right? It's not arrogance. It's not for other people. It's not meant to deter your attention away from your own performance. But at the end of the day, if we're going to perform and, and we're all performers in some way or another, we might as well think effectively about that performance. It's too often we go into something and we take ourselves out of it before it even begins. We maybe second guess the amount of knowledge we have about a particular topic before a big presentation. Or we look to someone else and think like, oh wow, he or she you know, looks so much more professional or, or put together than I do. Why can't I have that, right? And we undermine our own preparation and our own sense of self-worth. And so one thing we work on 
uh, is deliberately reframing some of those experiences. Um, thought stopping is a really great tool that we can use to just become aware of the ineffective thought and then have some sort of physical way, tactile reminder to replace that thought with something more effective. Um, so I teach a technique called the R's, recognize, release, and refocus. We've got to first recognize that we've had the ineffective thought or experience or some sort of distraction that's come into our world that we need to address, right? Something that's taking us out of the competition. So maybe I'm, you know, lining up at the free throw line, getting ready. And for some reason, I keep replaying the last time I missed a free throw in a clutch moment, right? And that would be my first step to recognize that that's a thought that I'm having, a memory that I'm focusing on. Now I can choose to shoot the ball with that playing in my mind, with that as my last conscious thought. Um, but I think you and I know how that outcome is likely to go. Uh, just from what we know about mm -hmm. the importance and uh, salience of motor imagery, right? When we see something, we're more likely to execute it because we've now pre-programmed our neuromuscular system to execute that strategy, right? We've just primed our bodies to do that same exact thing. So we want to take that moment after we've recognized that we've had a distraction or an ineffective thought or image and then release it. And so for the basketball player, a perfect thing to do would be swiping the bottoms of your sneakers with your palms. How many times before a free throw do you do that anyways? And maybe that's a symbol for letting go of that frustrating experience that you had in your past. And then you receive the ball from the referee, take a deep breath. And the refocus element is either a cue word or phrase that reminds you of how great you are in the clutch moments. Maybe it's a reminder about all the work you've put into your shot. Maybe it's a focal point and you're just looking at that spot at the very front of the rim. Maybe it's fully immersing yourself in that deep diaphragmatic breath that you take right before releasing your shot. But there's some sort of refocusing strategy to get your mind on the performance in front of you. That's that's awesome. I think anyone listening right now can take that and could bring that into their everyday life for sure. All right, Jen, I think we're going to wrap this up. So before we go, just make our listeners know where they can find more information about you. And if they really liked what you said and they want to reach out well, to you. Well, there's a few places. Um, I've got a website, jenschumacher.com. Uh, folks are welcome to check it out, sign up for a newsletter uh, and read a little bit about the work that I do. Um, although I'm not super active on social media, I do have Twitter and Instagram. So I'm at channel swim Jen on Twitter and I'm at Jen Schumacher on Instagram. Uh, and I'd be happy to send that over if you do any show notes or anything like that. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn too. Yeah, so if that's easier for folks to just reach out and send an email, um, I'd be happy to continue the conversation in any of those platforms. Great. Jen, this was awesome. I really appreciate your time. And Anytime, Joe. Thanks so much. I hope to see you at Iron Health soon. Thank you for joining us today and listening to the iHealth Podcast. Visit us at ironhealth.co for resources and more information about us. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook, both at ironhealth.co. Stay healthy and keep moving.